So tonight, um, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. And kind of the goal for tonight, we're going to read through 18 through verse 23. Um, I would like for you, I'm going to stop at 23, but I would like for you, as you're reading this, maybe when I stop and kind of get myself oriented on what I'm going to do next, that you would just finish 24 and 25 um, there. Um, because this thought that we're going to be starting on tonight kind of carries through into verses uh, 24 and 25 there. Um, I want to open up in prayer again. Um, I ask that you would pray for me, um, specifically as I uh, teach this, um, that God would just uh, give me the words uh, and that He would um, just not let me say anything of myself and that it would be uh, all for Him and for His glory. So let's just open in prayer one more time. Lord, again, as I come to You, I thank You. I am humbled to be able to stand before Your people and to open Your Word. Um, it is such a, an amazing burden uh, a beautiful burden, Lord, that I gladly will uh, carry this calling that you've placed on me to share your word. And uh, the thing that uh, I'm so often afraid of, uh, you know very well, is that I would somehow mess it up. Um, that I would say something from my own sinfulness, Lord, because I'm not there yet, and you're still working in me this gospel that. Uh, we are going to be learning more and more about. Uh, so I just you know, openly before you and before your church, um, I mean, you know very well how fallen and sinful that I am. Um, but sometimes I fear that, that, that maybe I do a better job than I should of, of hiding and concealing those uh, faults and failures uh, to my church family. Um, Maybe sometimes I fear that they're not as gracious as you. Um, or maybe sometimes I fear that my sinfulness is maybe too shameful. Um, so I just I ask that you would um, use me as, as broken and as uh, clearly sinful as I am. Um, that you would do amazing things. Um, I, I, you know, I long for the day that, that I don't have to worry or struggle with the sin that's, that still so often calls out to me. Um, but I pray that in that struggle, that my faith is pushed more and more on you. Um, and that that from that, you would uh, fuel a passionate fire in me for you and for the hope that I know is in you because I know that I rely on it each and every day of my life. So I pray as I preach that that would be, uh, that that would be evident. I thank you for Christ. He is the only hope that any of us have. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so um, Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through verse uh, 15, introduction. We've been covering verses 16 and 17 for a few 
weeks now, and I would include those two verses in the introduction of this book, but these two verses act as a bridge between the introduction that Paul is giving of himself to the Romans and his purposes and his hopes and his desires into the gospel for which he is uh, sold out in his life and for which he is giving up everything in his pursuit to spread the word ultimately to those who have not heard of this gospel yet. So here we are in verse 18. You could consider this thought a continuation of verse 16 and 17 and really just opening up now into the gospel. So now we're eight. This will be the ninth sermon in this series so far. And we're out of the introduction now. And we're about to start diving in deep into the gospel. One thing that I want us to pay attention to is that Paul here immediately dives into the problem, right? So I want us to get that. And, and for those who are with me during the Ecclesiastes study, the next couple of times may feel in some ways similar to the, what we went through in the Ecclesiastes study where we're dealing with sin, we're dealing with the fallenness of mankind, and that's sometimes uncomfortable, most of the time uncomfortable to address, Right? Uh, but what I want us to keep an eye on this whole time is that this is pushing us to this truth that we've been looking at uh, already in 16 and 17. Um, we're going to do some stuff a little bit different today. Uh, we're going to read and then uh, I want us to examine these verses and just kind of kind of step back and, and think about what is it exactly uh, that Paul is saying here as he opens up uh, into the into the truth of the gospel here. So um, let's read. I'm going to start in 16, um, just because, like I say, it really is this the the start of what we're doing here. So one in 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For, now notice here that 16 starts off, 4, 17, 4, 18, now again, 4. So this idea, he's just kind of adding on, adding on here. 4, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
So now we are starting in, if you were, if you were to pull back up that, uh, the outline that I'd kind of given you a couple of weeks back, we're starting into a major section of the book of Romans that I would classify or title as the problem of sin. Right Now I want to point out a couple of things and, and then we're going to kind of step over to what um, we've got up on the thing here. And we're going to kind of talk about an idea that comes out of this. So I want you to see a couple of things here real quick. First, in Romans 16 and 17, we see that the, the idea and the thought is on the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith in the gospel that's set forth. In verses in verse 18 here, we see another idea that comes up. The unrighteousness of man. So we've got the righteousness of God on one side, and we've got the unrighteousness of men on the other. Now, what does righteousness do? What would we conclude from the Scripture here that we can see that righteousness does? The righteousness of God reveals. Right? God's righteousness reveals truth about who? God. The gospel reveals truth about who? God. Now what about man? What does man do? What does the unrighteousness of man do? The opposite. We find the gospel revealing truth. We find the sinfulness of man suppressing truth. This is what it says here in verse 18. For the wrath of God... Now we're going to get to that. That's where if you'd have gone on into 24 and 25, you would have seen this start playing out. And it gets really scary really quick. And I'm, I'm not downplay, or I'm not you know, kind of building that up in any way. Um, what we find in these opening verses of this book is, is something... Extremely frightening. It is God abandoning man to his sinfulness. And what would you imagine happens if you're given over to your sinfulness? What happens? Maybe you become exceedingly sinful. Maybe. I think we're going to see this as, as something that's absolutely true. And there's going to be some things that we're going to examine in this. We've had a couple of ideas that have kind of come up in a couple of past um, sermons on the sovereignty of God and, and the freedom of the will of men. And I want us to think, and we're going to see this as we dig through Scripture, specifically on freedom. Now, I hold that I make free decisions. I believe this. I believe that my decisions matter. That when I do good, I do good. And when I do bad, I do bad. And here's what I'm going to tell you is I believe that what God's Word tells us is that though you may be free in your decisions, you are bound by your sinfulness. In fact, you are enslaved to sin. And this is scary, right? This is scary. So much so that we would go on to find that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, right? This is the kind of truths that we're going to find we're led to here. Your freedom has led you to a very, very dangerous and scary place, right? 
You are. Now, and, and I speak to you as though you were lost, knowing that you're saved, right? But, but here's where we are in the gospel, this idea of our state apart from Christ, apart from the work of the cross, is that we find ourselves in a state of sinfulness, where our wills are bound towards sinfulness. Right? You act out of your own free desires. Yet the problem is, is that you desire nothing but sin. This is the problem. And this is a scary problem. You do not seek God. So you freely suppress the truth of God. Why would you do this? Why do we do this? Why does the lost world do this? Sin does this. Unrighteousness does this. Why? Because the truth of God reveals who we are. And we don't want to accept that. Because ultimately, we know that if God is giving laws, then it's God who is going to uphold those laws. And that's the scary thing. Because what does that mean? Is that we stand guilty before this God. Right? We stand guilty. Unless there's something that happens. And this is the beauty of the Gospel. But here's the truth. Is that we can't really understand the beauty of the Gospel unless we understand just how depraved we are in our sinfulness apart from the work of the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ on the cross. Right? is that we are absolutely sinful. Our desires are sinful. Our will is bent towards sin in such a way that we do not seek God. We seek to suppress Him. And this is the truth that we start off with right in the first chapter of the book of Romans. This is it. For the wrath of God is revealed in... And that's looking forward to Him abandoning sinfulness or sinners to their sinful desires, right? We'll, we'll see that probably next week. Uh, but it, that I want you to get that it starts in this, and then it'll kind of chain over to there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then it goes on in verse 23 to say that, that and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what do we do in our sinful condition? We want to hide from God. We want to suppress all truth from God so that we don't have to think about where we're at and the problem and the predicament that we have gotten ourselves into right so what do we do we suppress the truth and and i want i want us to see that that in fact because i believe the large majority of you to be uh christians and i believe in this that god has opened your eyes so that you can see and know truth in a very special way so that we can examine this now as christians we can look at this and we can see just how absolutely true the statements of this book are. And we should reflect back then on who we once were and how enslaved to our sinful natures we once were. And now your minds have been opened up to see a greater truth. 
So that what once would, and for the large majority of the world is still hidden by their sinfulness, you can now see clearly and truly. So let's look at this. Your unrighteousness, suppressing truth. And what does it say about this? What does it say about this truth? Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. To who? To the unrighteous, right? To unrighteous men who suppress the truth through their unrighteousness. What can be known about God, verse 19, is plain to them. Why is it plain to them? Because God has shown it to them. How much more clear can it be than for God to show you? And I want to ask you, in what clearer way could God show you that He is and show you attributes about Himself than what He has done? Right? God has revealed Himself in creation in a way that is so powerful, so huge, that it's undeniable, that, it's, that Scripture would say that it's plain and clear. Verse 20, for His invisible attributes. So it's talking about we can see in what He's done attributes about God Himself. This is an amazing thing. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature. So we can see the power of God and the nature of God. What does it mean when when it says that we can see the nature of God? We can see some of the character of God in what He has done. This is an amazing thing. And I want you to... Maybe we take it for granted. I think sometimes we take it for granted... But probably not so much so if you were to go to a university, a secular university, and you were to sit among the physics department, or you were to sit among the astronomy department, or the, the biology department. You would probably be sitting in there, and you would be like, I don't know that it's so clear now, because apparently all these people that I think are smarter than me don't see what I see. They see something different. But here's what I want to tell you, is that the truth of God's Word is that we would suppress clear truth about God and instead exchange it for a lie. This is a big deal. This is what God's Word is telling us here. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So where can we see God's power? And where can we see His divine nature? In creation itself. And I want us to, we're going to spend some time tonight, kind of, and we've done this bits and pieces over past sermons, but I want to bring it together tonight and kind of show you, we're going to look at four different arguments where we're going to set this aside and we're going to look at what God has created and we're going to see how that from creation itself with with eyes open to the truth of Christ. Now this is not possible to do if you are lost. Because what does it say about the unrighteous man? That you lie and suppress this truth, right? But this truth was with eyes opened by the by the work of the Holy Spirit, opened by God Himself working in your life. You will be able to clearly perceive these truths, right? We will be able to examine creation, and it will be like, oh snap, that is so clear to see. And then you'll go and you'll try to explain it to your lost friend or or your family member or something like that, and they're going to be like, hold up. I don't believe that, not one second. Right? And half of them ain't been to biology class. They, they, just, they heard something and it just doesn't seem like it makes sense to them. Right? 
So we're going to examine this a little bit. But I want us to see that God Himself has given us a revelation about Himself. Now, here's the one kind of caveat that I want to say, is that God has revealed enough of Himself in creation, in the created order, to send you straight to hell. You can know Him and know that He exists, but you cannot know Christ by name and action through the created world. So He's revealed to us in Scripture, this is sending Christ through the people of Israel, right, into the world. This is that work so that you can know God personally, not just know that He exists and know some particularly scary character traits about Him. Because what we're going to find is that, that if you see the things that we can actually extract out from just thinking about what God has done, then we're going to find a very powerful, a very... Uh, potentially scary God that would maybe uh, you would you would worship him out of fear but not worship him out of love for what he has done for you so we find because of this uh, almost every if not every major people group in the world worshiping some kind of being that's molded and manipulated in the way that we see here for although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and creeping things. So, Dennis, if you would put up on the board. Now, we're gonna, I'm going to talk about some of this. Can you all see that? Now, I don't expect you to be able to read that bottom part. There's a lot there. Um, And that's just kind of a... Kind of a side note for this anyways. Um, We're going to go over a topic. Now, who has ever uh, been in a class with me where I've done the apologetic stuff? So we've got some. Who's ever heard the word apologetics used before? Okay, we've got some more. Um, Who's ever done anything with apologetics? So you kind of, even though you may not have sat in a class where I taught apologetics, you've at least had some experience into into how it kind of works a little bit. So one or Okay, so we're going to go over this idea of apologetics. Apologetics is the Christian apologetics specifically, is the idea of being able to give a defense of what it is that you believe. Now, this has many aspects and attributes. There's positive apologetics, which we're going to look at tonight. This makes an offensive move, right? And there's negative apologetics, which is making a defense, saying this particular passage of text does not contradict this particular passage of text because... and giving explanations, because there's, so there's a wide area and variety of, of topics and subtopics in this idea of Christian apologetics. We're going to cover a very, very, very narrow view of this that's in a band that you would call natural theology, the idea that you can look at nature and, and draw from things that we can see and think about some very particular aspects. We're uh, essentially pulling out what we see here uh, in Romans Chapter 1, where God says it's plain to see. Now, um, these are things that are plain to see for us, and they're not going to be plain to see when you try to share them with your lost whoever, right? So I want to go ahead and say that up front. Will you go to the next slide, Dennis? There's a, a couple of resources that I want to point you to, and more specifically, I want to say it so it gets recorded, so when I put it online, um, and people that can't see the slides, see the stuff, can go and... Uh, reference to these books. I won't, I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to read them out. Um, if you're interested in these kind of things, I would say go and read this stuff. That first one's going to take you 
a year or more. It took me a year. I spent an hour and a half a day. It took me a year to get through this book. The Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology. Everything that I would cover here tonight or could ever cover would be covered in this book. Um, the second one, which is an, a more easily easy to approach book, um, is called Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. If you Google William Lane Craig or search him on YouTube, you'll find tons of interesting uh, debates that he's done with atheists, and most of the time he makes them look like utter fools. So I would definitely recommend uh, going and, and kind of researching this guy. Another book, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, I would definitely recommend it. And kind of not going to be on anything that we, that we look at tonight, um, but is going to be specific if you ever try to present these things to someone who is lost. Um, is going to be a book, Is God a Moral Monster? It deals with the Old Testament in a very good way. There's a lot of hard things to explain um, in the Old Testament concerning specifically the character of God. The big book of Bible difficulties, this book, I would, if, if you don't have it, go buy it. Big book of Bible difficulties, Norman L. Norman L. Geisler. This book covers every difficult passage or topic or idea. If you look in the Old Testament, you find this passage of text where you know, the ground opens up and swallows up a guy and his family. And you're like, why in the world would God do something like that? That's in the book. So go, go get that book. Um, that's definitely a good one to have. And then another one that's not specifically um, apologetics related, but it's going to be a, an excellent book for you to have if you're thinking and considering on the character of God um, is a book called The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. Um, that is a must-read. It's a fairly short book, um, so you can get through it pretty easily. So with that being said, go to the next slide. So I want to give some warnings ahead of time, and I've already kind of touched on the first warning. Romans 1, 18-25 would tell us that this problem is ultimately a problem of rebellion, right? That what we're going to find is that when you are lost and in sin, and that would be the lost world that we're trying to reach, what you're going to find is that they're going to suppress these kind of things and there's going to be a thousand other excuses that they come. So the ultimate way to a person's heart is not through argument, right? Ultimately, the Holy Spirit must change us or we will not be changed, right? But the Bible tells us to always be ready to give a reason for what it is that we believe, right? So we arm ourselves and we get ourselves prepared and ready so that we can go out and that we don't look foolish when we present the truth of this this book because we're ready and we're studied and we're prepared, that kind of thing. Um, the, and, and I kind of put this as a side note, the most important apologetic that you will ever give, the, the best evidence that you will ever be able to give for the existence of God is the life that you live, right? If you want somebody's life to be changed, then you live a changed life, right? Because here's the powerful thing that the gospel tells us is that we don't change. God changes us. So if somebody can look at you and that they can see a life that progressively grows in holiness, grows in passion and desire for God, that that is a life that has been touched by something other than reading good books. That's a life touched by God Himself, because that's the only way that we change. So I want to kind of, those are a couple of caveats I want to get out of the way before we get into this. Um, but I want this to be, to, this evening, an example for you of the truth that we see in this. So we're going to go through four arguments. Um, they have names, and you can look them up online. Um, the guy, William Lane Craig, that I mentioned earlier, he has a, that reasonable faith covers 
all of these in pretty good detail. So like I said, go get that book. It's a good one. Um, the first argument we're going to look at is the co- cosmological argument from contingency. And if some of these words scare you, it's okay. We're going to talk about the ones that need defining. The Kalam cosmological argument from the beginning of the universe. The teleological argument from fine-tuning. The moral argument from moral values and duties. Now what we're going to do with each of these is that we're going to go ahead and go to the next slide. Is that we're going to look at these, and these are set up. When I say argument, I don't mean like you, you know what happens with you and your spouse, right? When I say argument, I'm talking about a logical argument. Logical arguments are set up in a very specific way. So you'll see that these I've got them numbered. I hope I numbered all of them, all the slides. I hope they have numbers and not just dots. But we'll see when we get there. Um, arguments have what's called a premise. This is an idea that carries some weight of truth and. Premises add together to give you a conclusion at the end. So every, at the end of every one of these arguments, you'll find a conclusion that if each of the premises above holds, then the argument holds. So this is, this is logic 101 kind of stuff. Um, so we're going to kind of push through this. And I've got, my, um, I've got my iPad with me. I try to make some notes. And it, so if you see me kind of, it's very tiny text on this thing. If you see me squinting, it's because... It's been a long day and my eyes get blurry at the end of the day. Um, so we're going to cover the first argument. First, um, it has three premises, one conclusion. Um, contingent things exist. We're going to talk about what a contingent thing is. Uh, contingent things exist because of an infinite series of other contingent things or a necessary thing. We're going to talk about what it means for something to be necessary as well. That's a pretty big deal. We believe God to be necessary. So we're going to... We're going to Kind of examine that a little bit. Uh, the third premise is that it's not because of an infinite series of other contingent things. That would lead us to a conclusion that it must be because of a necessary thing. And then what we're going to do with the next slide, leave it there though, but the next slide we're going to kind of look at what this necessary thing must look like. Adrian, I hope that I do a good job with this. This is Whenever I was telling Adrian that I was going to do this. She was like, you're going to do that confusing one? I was like, I hope it's not confusing. <laughs> it can be confusing. That's okay. I just want you to think, right? I want you to think. Um, so be ready to listen closely. Words are important. So as I kind of, I've done this stuff for like, probably like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. Um, so sometimes I can rattle off, I, I, and, and I want you to listen closely. So let's think about what it means for something to be contingent. Let's think on that for a second. Does anybody know what it means that something is contingent? It's kind of a technical word, but when, when you hear what it is, it's not that difficult to get. Does anybody know? Does anybody want to get like brownie points? What if, something, if I say that something is contingent, what do I mean by that? Okay, yeah, so that's good. So if something is contingent, all right, you want to... Log this away in your brain for what it means for something to be contingent. If something in, is contingent, its existence is dependent directly on something prior to it. Right? So what would be an example of this? Okay? Easy one for all of you to get. You are contingent. And your existence is contingent. How, what would be a good way of knowing that that is a true statement? If your mom and your dad didn't, then you wouldn't. <laughs> Try to be as PG as possible. Right? <laughs> Kids are in here. <laughs> so if your mom and dad didn't, you wouldn't. 
Your existence is dependent on them. Right? Got it? So let's get a couple of other examples of this. This iPad that I'm holding is contingent. Can you give me an example of what it would be contingent upon? It would be contingent on a lot of different things. One, it's got a backing that's made out of aluminum. So it's contingent on the existence of aluminum. But you could imagine there being one made of wood or something. right? So it's, a, it's contingent on matter and energy. Power and energy, right? So it's contingent on that. It's also contingent on Apple made it. So if they didn't make it, it wouldn't exist. So it's got someone creating it, right? And I want you to follow me here. That probably just about everything that you could think of would be contingent. Y'all want to do a little test to see if I can how if I can figure these kind of things out? Name something, and, and I'll see if I can figure out how it's contingent. Just throw out a random something. It's got to be PG though. My jacket. So my jacket is dependent on the thrift store <laughs> where I got it from, <laughs> and it's dependent on who made it. And this is dry clean only. Um, I don't, it's dependent on the maker. I don't. I can't see who made it. Hanover Square Parisian or something, right? So it's dependent on the maker. So that's one. Give me a hard one. Give me a hard one. The belt that I have on. It would, I don't know who made it, but it would be the same kind of thing. It's dependent on the belt maker and leather, right? And aluminum or whatever that. My teeth, my teeth are dependent. And now this is an interesting one. So my teeth, what are teeth made out of? Teeth stuff. It's dependent on the existence of teeth stuff, right? Cells that turn into teeth stuff, that whole thing, right? So it's dependent on a lot of things too. Like it's dependent on my DNA. Like if I had different DNA, my teeth would be shaped a little different, right? I got two big front teeth. Like they could be tinier teeth if that's... Contingent on the DNA that I have, which is contingent on what? My parents, right? So anybody else got anything else? Dirt. Dirt is contingent on what? Matter, right? Dirt's made of stuff. If stuff didn't exist, dirt couldn't exist. What else? There's some, there's some harder ones. God. Now, is God dependent on anything? No. So, now I could throw out some questions for you. So God is love, yes? Does God need an object of that love? Is His love contingent on creation? This is a pretty deep one. I would say no. He doesn't need creation to be a God of love. Why? Because there's multiplicity of personality within the Godhead. God the Father has eternally loved God the Son, and God the Son has eternally loved God the Father, and that was before they spoke anything into existence. Right? So, God would hold up to this idea of not contingent. Right? So, being not contingent. So, what would something that was not contingent be? And, and this argument would say that there's really two classifications of things. Either things that depend on other things, we would label that contingent, or things that depend on nothing for their existence. And those things would be labeled what? The other word that we've got up there. Necessary. Now necessary, not in the same sense of you think, well, if you don't drink water, then you will die, so water's necessary. Right? Like that's how we tend to think about 
necessary, right? That's not the type of necessary that this word represents, right? This is completely isolated of need or dependency upon anything. And this is an amazing thing because we actually, in Christian theology, claim this property about God, that God is, in fact, a necessary being. What it means for something to be necessary, follow me, is that it would be impossible for it not to exist. Right? Impossible not to exist. Literally, the only thing that I can conceive of that it would be impossible for it not to exist would in fact be God Himself. Right? Now some other places that you could, and I'll leave this as kind of homework, numbers, ideas, and thoughts. Where would they fall into? We don't have time to go into that tonight, but I want you to think about that. Numbers are not made up of stuff. Right? Could they potentially exist? Or do they only exist because minds conceive of them? Is it possible that numbers exist because God's eternal mind has eternally conceived of them? If so, then that would mean that numbers themselves were contingent upon the mind and thoughts of God. So that's just a kind of an interesting side note there. So now we've got the definition of contingent and necessary. That's actually the easy part. Right? Now the next, the next claim that's made in this, so contingent things exist. Yes, we all agree with this point. I don't think that you'll find anybody outside of us that would disagree with this point. Contingent things exist. iPads exist, you exist. Dirt exists, rocks exist, stars exist. All these things don't have to exist by their very nature, but they do. So they're contingent, right? So the next point of this argument, contingent things exist because of an infinite series of other contingent things. And we're going to discuss and think about that. Or they exist because of a necessary thing. So this point of the argument would say there's two reasons that something could exist. One is that when you get to this iPad, you say, well, it needs metal. And then you step to the metal and you can say, well, it needs this. And then you step to the next thing and you step to the next thing. An infinite series of contingent things would be that everything that makes this up whether it be the one who created it or the things that it's created from, you can always step one step back and say, well, that's made of or that exists because of. Right? Y'all follow me? And then you could step back one more time and say, well, that exists because of. Right? That would be, and you would just go on and on and on infinitely far back into the past. Right? And ultimately, if everything that we really conceive of is contingent, then that would mean everything in existence ultimately goes farther and farther and farther and farther back, right? Now this is, just, this is just foolish to think that that would be the way that it is. Why? This would be like, this idea, this concept, would be like me telling you, I'm saying, Ray, Friday is payday. You'll get paid on Friday, but before you get paid on Friday, you have to do an infinite amount of work for me, and then I'll pay you. Well, if I were to say to Ray, what do y'all think Ray would reply if I said, Ray, I'll pay you a billion dollars if you can do an infinite amount of work for me by Friday? What would you say? What, would, what should Ray do? It's a billion dollars. I mean, first of all, you're probably like, Landon, I have a billion dollars. <laughs> you know, but let's just pretend. What would Ray, what should Ray say? That's foolish. Why? Why would it be foolish? 
Because you can't complete an infinite amount of work. So if your boss were to tell you something, this is just foolish. So then that would fall back. We would fall back then to this idea of there, it needing to be done by a necessary thing. A thing that when you ran all of those contingent things back, you stepped upon this necessary thing for which you could not say something was needed prior to. Right? And this is the idea that we have for God. Now, that was the end of that one, and that one's actually uh, the harder one that we're going to look at. Now, go to the next slide, and here are some properties of this necessary thing, right? So we're not going to say God. Now, ultimately, we're all in church, so we know where we're going with this, right? Well, we're just going to call it for now a necessary thing. It's this necessary entity. Now, what do we know about it? Because what we're trying to get to is this truth that we see here in Scripture, that God has said, and what we've done here, what you've taken part in is what's known as a thought experiment, right? You've thought with your mind on these things, and with the mind that you have, you've come to particular conclusions. It would be foolish that it was just an infinite amount of contingent things, so there must be something necessary there. This is one of the ways that we're going to kind of look at these arguments. One, logically, Two, scientifically, and then the last kind of type of argument that we're going to look at is going to be a moral type of argument. All of these things are going to show us particular character traits that we can extract from the thing, the argument that we've kind of set up. So this one, what, the clearly necessary, right? So it's necessary. Now, you, all of these things, I want you to, to note when we look at these things, that these things are, if you, and this is why I say it's important to, to read that book from A.W. Pink on the attributes of God, or go do some kind of Bible study on God's attributes, because what you'll find is that what I'm going to be showing you at the end of each of these arguments, these kind of things that we draw from it, these are going to fall out and turn out to be attributes of the God that we claim that the Bible speaks of, which is what the Bible says, right? God's Word says that He has made it clear, not only in Scripture that He exists, but from what He has created that He exists, right? And this, is a, this was a, like a three-premise argument. We're going to have some two-premise arguments coming to conclusions here in a little bit. Very easy to follow logically, but what you will find is that if you present these to someone who is lost and you lead them through it honestly and truthfully, they're going to think to themselves, there's got to be a trick to this. Because you can't prove God, right? So I want you all to just keep that in mind. So here's some of the things that we can extract from this. One, it's necessary. Two, it's uncaused. Why can we say that it's uncaused? Right? If it was caused by something, what would it be? Contingent. Right? So if something has a cause, was caused to exist, then it's contingent by its very nature. Right? So for it to be a necessary thing, it must be uncaused. It must be self-existent. Right? What do we claim about God? What does God claim about Himself? What does He tell Moses? I am that I am. Or I am what I will be. What do you think he's saying when he tells us that in his word? That he is the necessary being. This is what he's telling us there. I am that I am. That's what he's saying. No one else can make that claim. You can't. Your breath is not yours. Right? You, you command not one day to come into existence. 
You are absolutely, in so many ways, beyond what we could even account for tonight, contingent upon so many things. God is what He will be, and none other can make claim like that. He is necessary, uncaused, self-existent, and personal. I want to save this personal for the next one. This argument kind of rolls over into the next argument. We're going to get into some kind of scientific-looking things. And I, like, I want to do this because sometimes I think that we have, as a church, relegated our hearts to one place and our minds to another. And what I want you to get is that all truth is God's truth. Right? That includes scientific truth. So we don't have to be afraid of what somebody's going to dig up. Right? Because if God is true, if He's the way, the truth, and the lie, what do we have to fear from truth? We don't fear truth. Right? So let's look at uh, the next argument, which is the Kalam cosmological argument. Google it to see its history and all that kind of stuff. This argument has two points and a conclusion. So like I say, it gets, it starts getting simpler along the way. And now I want y'all to, if you have a, if, if any of this confuses you, let me know. I hope that it's worded here in a simple enough way that it's just, you know, you're like, well, what's the, what's the point? That wasn't hard. Like, I want that to be your thought when you hear this. Like, well, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Right? And then go and try to use that on somebody that's lost. And they're going to be like, well, whatever. It can't be that easy. And you'll see that the truth of this is revealed that unless God opens a man's heart to himself, that we are bound by our sinfulness and that we would suppress the truth about who he is. So uh, the first premise of this argument is that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Right? Do y'all get that? That's not a very complicated statement. Right? Everything that comes into existence has a cause. This idea is similar to that of contingency. It varies, it varies slightly, but not so slightly that the analogies we used prior would, would fall in any major way to this. So everything that begins to exist has a cause. Make sense? Yes? Who, who's, who are you going to go to that's going to say, no, I got one? Does anybody got one? Does anybody have an example of something that came into existence that began to exist, that did not have a cause. Right? This is the law of causality. Like, if you didn't believe this, then you probably wouldn't be able to live your life. Because this is like the simplest and most basic of truths that we hold to in, in our day-to-day lives. That if something happens, it had a reason for happening. If you go home and you find that your home is a wreck and a mess and that glass is busted all over and that drawers are pulled out, you're not going to say, well, that just is, what are you going to say? Something happened to cause it to be like this, right? Right? Somebody broke in. So everything that begins to exist has a cause, right? The next is the universe began to exist, right? Now this is kind of a scientific one, and I know that sometimes when we're in church we get scared of that kind of thing. So whether you believe that the earth is 6,000 years old or however many billions of years old, uh, one thing that we would both uh, conclude is that at some point in the past it had a beginning. Now, uh, scientifically, this has come to be known as the Big Bang. Um, so this is, the, this is the good news about this, is that science now has come to the point to where it's in agreement with this idea that the universe began 
to exist. Now, when we start digging into this, there's going to be, again, some very interesting things that come out of whatever this cause must have been. We'll call it a cause for now. Whatever this cause must have been, there's some interesting attributes that we know about it because we know what it could not have been, right? Um, So just a couple of facts for you. Um, The universe is expanding, right? So the universe, and we know this for various different reasons that the universe is expanding. Galaxies are moving away from us. If you looked in the night sky and had a telescope uh, expensive enough that you could see this, you would see that every galaxy that is out there is moving away from us. What does this tell us? That the universe is expanding. So if the past, and this is an interesting thing to note about this, if the past had been infinite, what would we know about this? So this, some of this is, a, is slightly technical, we're not going to go into it. The reason that we know that the universe is expanding, the reason that we can see these things, know that they're moving away, is, a, is a, an idea called redshifting. You could think of the same way that when a, when a high-speed car is coming down a racetrack, that you hear it coming one way, you know, like it, it's, the sound changes. That's Doppler effect. Redshifting is the Doppler effect for light. We can look at the galaxies that are out there with the like I said, expensive in that telescope, and you can see that the galaxies are moving away. We know they're moving away because they're shifting to red. And they shift to red, and eventually they shift to the point where you cannot see the light anymore. So follow me. If everything is shifting to red, if the universe were eternal in the past, every galaxy that exists, again, if it were eternal in the past, would have already shifted into red, where you could not see it anymore. So the night sky, apart from the stars that are local to us, you would not see a galaxy. Because if the universe were eternal, it would have had time already to do it. So that would lead us to believe that the universe, in fact, is not eternal scientifically. So you rewind that back. Everything's moving away. If you rewind it, what does that mean? You rewind it closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. Eventually everything's in the same spot. They kind of refer to this as a singularity. There's a lot of stuff going on in there. You could look up if you were interested in it. Needless to say, the universe is not eternal scientifically. So this means that it had an existence or a a beginning to its existence. So the first statement in this is that everything that begins to exist had a cause. The universe, you go out and speak to any scientist that's worth his pay, he's going to tell you, yeah, the universe began to exist, and you bring up point number one where everything that begins to exist has a cause, and they're going to say, well, it must be a multiverse or something like this. Have anybody ever heard of that? Right? And I want you to tell, when they do that, when they throw that up, what I want you to know is that a multiverse is as untestable as your faith in God. I want you to know that. That there is no scientific test to test for a multiverse. Right? So that's the current best of the best. Hide the truth about who God is. Suppression is something that's very much unscientific by its very nature. Right? So this, I want you to see, what do we do? What does unrighteousness do? It suppresses truth. Instead of what is clear to be true, that everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. The universe began to exist, therefore... What do we know about it? That it has a cause. Right? Now here's where the interesting thing comes in for this. Is that this cause can be neither material 
nor in time. Right? It cannot be in space and time. Why is this? Because when the universe came into existence, time itself came into existence. Right? Go to the next slide. This is what we know from, from this. That whatever it was, was uncaused. Because it is the cause of everything. Right? It is the first mover of all things that have been moved. The next thing we know is that it is timeless and changeless. How do we know that? Again, time came into existence when the universe came into existence. What do we claim about God? That He's timeless and changeless. Right? You follow? Why changeless? I mean, you, I've just got changeless kind of stuck out there to the side of it. Because change happens where? In time. Right? The way we even describe things changing, we use time to describe it. So, timeless, changeless. Immaterial, why immaterial? The same reason timeless, because matter and energy came into existence there. So it can't be made of something. Right? Now this is the claim. These are all things that we claim about God. Right? When, and I put extremely powerful here. Now, I say extremely powerful because it could possibly debatable. Maybe it's not all powerful. I mean, it breathes nothing into something, but just for the sake of not debating, we'll just say it's ridiculously powerful. Right? And for the in-house debate, we'll say it's all powerful. Right? So whatever this thing is can take nothing and speak everything. Right? Because at the beginning, time, space, Matter, energy, everything. Prior to the beginning, none of it. Right? So whatever did it must have been powerful. And here's where we're going to get into the personal. Why personal? There's two, there's two ways that we know, uh, there's two ways that you can classify causes. One uh, are causes based on the laws of physics. Two are personal causes. Right? So I want to think about this. Like if I were to take this cup and I were to drop this cup, why does this cup fall from here to here? Or why would it? Gravity, right? The laws of nature. Now here's the interesting thing about this. Is that prior to the beginning, there were no laws of nature. Do you get that? Do you get that? That at the beginning... Time, space, matter, energy, the laws by which our universe is governed came into existence at that moment. So whatever caused all of this could not have been a physical law because physical laws came into existence at the beginning. And there are only two. Now, if you could tell me a third, then we'll talk about that. But there are only two causes or two movers we'll call it one is physical laws of nature two are people or agents right personal causes so if it wasn't and absolutely could not have been a physical law that caused the universe then that leaves only one other option is that somebody wanted to move something and what does god's word say about this god spoke Right? God moved. He wanted. He desired. And that's when we talk about personal, that's what we mean is that personal does things of its own person or own will or desire. So whatever this is 
could not have been physical, must have been personal. Go to the next one. Let me catch up here in my in my notes. <clears throat> Where are we at? Teleological. So this is what's called the fine-tuning argument would be another way of uh, thinking about this. It's a big word for, you know, a, a pretty straightforward uh, idea. So two premise, one conclusion. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either, either physical necessity, chance, or design. The second premise would say, well, it's not due to physical necessity or chance, therefore it must be due to design. So this is a fairly straightforward Argument. I want to talk about three reasons that it could not be that point two. Go back. Go back. That point two holds that it is not physical necessity and that it is not chance. And I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of just read through this for the sake of uh, just time. Um, th- this is a list of uh, physical constants that are in no way dependent on the laws of nature. The laws of nature literally just have them plugged in, and they don't have to be like this. They could be a multiple. They could be literally an infallible number of other values, the large majority of which would result in no life at all uh, existing. Uh, literally, the large majority of these. And for me to say that is, is an overwhelm, overwhelmingly uh, understatement of, of a fact. Like These numbers are unfathomably precise in their fine-tuning. And when I use the word fine-tuning here, this is the scientific definition. This is not like intelligent design kind of stuff. This is what scientists, they call it fine-tuning. Like when they look at these numbers, they say these are finely tuned numbers for the universe to exist and for life to exist. So I'm using their word here. This is not me trying to make it look like there was a fine-tuner. This is literally the word that they use here, right? So fine-tuning is the word. And this is why. Um, the ratio of strengths, so I've got five constants, that they're constants, that when you do the numbers, when you run the equation, that these are just, they're just there, they're measured, they're not, they're not in any way like thought up, they're, they're just, they're there. Um, the ratio of the strengths of gravity to that of electromagnetism, the strength of the force binding the nucleus to the nuclei, uh, this governs the energy output of stars, if it were a little bit different, stars wouldn't uh, exist in the way that they exist, and if they didn't exist in the way they exist, life wouldn't exist. Uh, the relative importance to, of gravity and the expansion energy of the universe, the value is 0.3. If it were greater than 1, the universe would collapse back in on itself. What do we know about that? No life. If it were, other, if it were greater than 1, it would expand indefinitely again. No life. Um, the cosmological constant, which is 0.7, um, the ratio of the gravitational energy required to pull uh, large galaxies apart to the energy equivalent of mass, um, the number of spatial dimensions in space-time. Um, when, I want to stop for one second. I want to say this, this study that you're getting in like an afternoon, this is literally when we di- did it, this takes us like six to eight months to go through. So if some of this seems like it's fast and overwhelming, that's because it is. And that's the point, right? What I want to get to is at the end of each of these things where we see the nature and the character of whatever these causes or things or, right? That's the important part to get from all this. So I'm throwing these numbers at you because um, they're true. Um, so uh, Roger Penrose, uh, who's an Oxford uh, professor, has calculated that the odds of the Big Bang, low entropy condition existing by chance, are on the order of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Um, if you are a mathematician, you realize how ridiculously big that number is. If you're not... Um, go look it up. That's a ridiculously big number. Like you, there's not enough. This is literally like 
how big it is. There's not enough atoms on molecules in the entire known universe that you would be able to write the zeros at the end of that. That's how precise that the start of all of this had to be for us to be here today, right? That's what's meant by finely tuned, right? Um, some other uh, some other interesting uh, facts is that the density of the universe during the early inflationary period had to be exactly like it was. The speed of the expansion had to be exactly like it was, or nothing would exist. Uh, then we get to, ju- now that's just for the universe to be in a place where life could exist, and now we get to some interesting things about life itself. So, um, for life to exist, it's not as common um, as you might think. There must be an abundant source of water in liquid form. 60% of your body is water, 70% of your brain is water. The planet must be in the right galaxy, which has the right heavy elements to, to produce a terrestrial planet. We need rocks to stand on kind of thing. Um, the planet would need to be formed during a narrow uh habitable window in time and cosmic history. The planet must be rocky, very similar to the Earth's composition. That's because the magnetic field of the Earth protects us from solar winds. If you did not have the atmosphere, not only would you not be able to breathe, but you would not be able to live because you would be ridiculously sunburned. Um, The planet must have active plate tectonics, right? The thing that causes earthquakes uh, must have that to recycle nutrients. They must ex- there must exist a large moon placed in such a way as to stabilize the planet's axis, which produces predictable seasons and produces tides in the planet's ocean. So liquid water, moon that causes, I mean, literally everything having to be so precise down to the minute detail. Uh, the planet would need to exist within a stable solar system with large outlying planets to protect it from cosmic debris. And just so happens, right, by chance, right, finely tuned, Right. This is this is the argument for fine tuning. Right. And there's some other interesting things about this uh, that we could see. What would we conclude from this about the attributes of this uh, fine tuner or this designer? Go to the next slide. Extremely powerful because we know how big the universe is. Uh, Intelligent because we know how finely tuned the universe is. Personal again. Why? Because it's finely tuned. The reason we call it finely tuned, the reason we can call it finely tuned, is because we are, in fact, here alive, right? So again, personal, creating, tuning for a reason, right? So that's, that's the teleological argument. The next argument, so each of these we've been looking at and seeing character attributes that we can find out about God, right? What does God's Word say here? That, the verse 19... For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So God's Word, what we're trying to see here is that when we examine this stuff, we find exactly what it's telling us here, is that God has made Himself evident to us in the things that He's made. So the next thing that we're going to look at, a little more personal to us is morality as a whole, the existence of morality. Why is it that though the world would seem as corrupt as could be, that we perceive corruption at all, right? That's the thing. Like we look at the world and we see that there is corruption. How do we know that there is corruption if we don't have some, even though our sin may have it skewed, some perception of a good, 
right? Of morality worth living for. So the moral argument goes like this, that if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, point three, God exists. So what you're going to find is that the first point is going to be a given, or not going to be a given. Um, we're going to find that the, uh, the second point in this is, is, is also something we're going to have to kind of dig into. Um, so I want to define for us very quickly um, what it means for something to be objective. I want to do this in a way that's kind of uh, easy uh, for us to grasp, okay? So I've got a couple of definitions here for all the stuff in there. Um, so moral values determines what is good or bad. That's kind of a worth claim. Moral duties determines what is right or wrong. This is something that, like a law, like you're obligated to do. For something to be objective, like when we say, when we claim something to be objective, what we mean is that something objective is not influenced by personal feelings or opinions in considering and representing the facts, right? Objective as opposed to a subjective view of the world, which is based and influenced on personal feelings. So for something to be objectively wrong or right, what that means is it doesn't matter what you think about it. You follow me? Y'all get that? This means that if Hitler won, right, when we say that it's objectively wrong what Hitler did, what that means is that if Hitler had won, and that he had killed every single person who did not agree with him. And we somehow lived in an upside-down world where Hitler was ruling everything, and everyone was convinced that what he did was good. What would that still mean about what he did? That it was bad. So it would not matter. Objective morality is a morality to where if every single person on the planet did not agree with it, that does not matter or affect the truth of that. Right? So if every person, and, and when we think about the law of God, if every person on the planet disagreed with it on every point, an objective morality, your opinion does not matter or factor into the truth of the right or the wrong. Now, subjective morality, on the other hand, would be a morality where your opinion matters, right? Where, and we've talked about this back in the Ecclesiastes study, and I think that we came to the conclusion that none of us would want to live in a world where uh, herd morality won out, right? Where if y'all thought that it was good to take my stuff, that it would be good to take my stuff, Right? Just because more of you thought it was good to take my stuff than not. Like, that's subjective morality. Now, I think it will be easy to show that nobody wants to live in a world to where morality is, is subjective. And, and the truth be known, none of us live our daily lives in a world where we believe that good and bad is a subjective thing. When somebody wrongs you, you believe that it's really wrong that someone wronged you, right? You don't believe that it's wrong just because you think it's wrong. You believe that it's really wrong. We really believe that what Hitler did was actually really wrong. We don't think it's our opinion, right? That's objective morality. Um, and the argument would go is that without God, there is no objective morality. And it follows because if there is no God, then all we're left with 
is naturalism. We've talked about naturalism in the past. Um, naturalism is a worldview in which there's no spiritual and there's no supernatural. There only is what exists, right? We're matter and energy, given enough time, given enough evolution. We're just monkeys who got smarter and smarter, right? So on a naturalistic worldview, evolution and survival of the fittest reign supreme. Under that worldview, survival is the better thing, right? Like to be able to prolong your bloodline and your genes, right? So what kind of world would evolve out of that? A world with society? Probably not. Look at the animal kingdom. Right? Do we find society like we find in humankind? Do we find them locking people up in jails? No. Right? Because we live as though morality is objective. Even though from generation to generation we find that there is a steady decline, crash corruption, and then what tends to happen like with Israel is that God shows mercy... And then we find a rise back and a steady decline down once again. Right? So if there is no God, uh, we're left also with determinism. This is just, you know, like I say, matter and energy in motion. From none of these do we find anything where you could uh, justifiably found uh, objective morality. So if God does not exist, objective morality. Morality does not exist. We believe that objective morality and objective moral values exist. Therefore, God exists. Go to the next slide. What will we then know or could we conclude about this lawgiver? Um, back up one more. One is that this lawgiver is the source of moral values and duties. Uh, that this lawgiver by definition would be morally righteous. Step back one more time. Um, n- yep, backwards. One more. It went blank. Um, and then personal would be, yeah, so personal. Again, for the same reasons. If you're giving laws, you're already at the point to where we're talking about a God or a uh, a lawgiver, excuse me, who is... Uh, personal in nature. Now, all of this is so that we can see the, the, the clarity and the truth of what we find as we open up in Romans chapter 1, looking at verses 18 through 23. So I want us, with this in mind, having kind of dug through these different ways that we can see through what God's created, using our minds and using uh, whether we use the logic that He's allowed us to be able to recognize or whether we explore scientifically or whether we dig in on ethics and morality and explore there, what we will find, and I, will, I would say that we can come to these conclusions because we have eyes that have been opened to the truths that we see here in Scripture, not eyes that have been abandoned or given up to our own dishonor and our own sin and shame. So one thing that I want us to, to kind of to come to as we see this because what's going to be what's going to be easy to do as we go through verse 18 down through the end of chapter one over the next coming weeks into chapter two and through on the end of that it's going to be very very easy for us to get to a point in our minds to where we look at this and forget that we too were once there 
right? So that we look at this, and it's so easy for us to, to be condemning. It's so easy for us because our eyes have been opened to these truths that when we see these kind of things, we're like, yeah, that makes sense. And then we forget that we once were, right? We once were in need of this gospel, for opening up our eyes. So as I wanted to kind of do this so that as we press on into this, that we don't come at it with hearts like, oh yeah, all the homosexuality in the world. or This is the natural course of our kind. Do you get that? This is where we tend. Are we not snatched up from the pits of it by a merciful God? So we knowing that, should have hearts like the one who's redeemed us. right? So when we look at this, it burdens us instead of causing us to be self-righteous. This is what I want us, as we're digging into this, I want our hearts to be pierced for those who are not seeing like we're seeing. Who are still blinded by unrighteousness and suppressing the truth that for us, here we see it because we've given, we've been given sight. The word has been preached, has taken hold in our lives. We've been changed and we're being changed. And that's so we can go out and make the name of God great. Knowing we need to know what it is that we face when we go out. And we need to know that this blindness, this self-inflicted, sinful, unrighteous man we once were, and the only hope that they have in their hopelessness is the only hope that we have. And the only hope that we have even today is found in the Gospel. So I want us to read this again. And we're going to close. And I want us to think about who we once were the wrath that once was going to be upon us. I want us to look forward to what we know and we thank God for in the cross. I don't want us to forget that when we preach the gospel, we preach sin. We preach unrighteousness. Because it's not the righteousness of man. It's the unrighteousness of man that suppresses truth. It's faith, and only in the faith in the finished work of Christ that we find the righteousness of God being revealed to us. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Church, they're without excuse. So they're going to stand condemned unless the Gospel is preached to them and their hearts are changed. There is no innocent. There is no innocent. You think, well, what about that person in Africa? Or what about that person wherever that hasn't heard the gospel? Do you know what happens when they die? They go to hell. 
Because God has revealed Himself. And they've rejected it. And they suppress the truth. And you know what the only hope they have? It's not found in looking out at the stars. Right? It's not found in coming to the conclusion that we live in a universe that's not past eternal. Right? It's nothing that they can find looking out. They'll know that there's a God and their sinfulness and the sinfulness of their fathers and the sinfulness of their fathers and the sinfulness of their fathers. They'll be hopeless without the Gospel. And the fact that we can sit in churches knowing the Gospel and not have an overwhelming desire within our hearts to go out and share the Gospel is concerning. And it should concern every single one of us that the first thing that we want to do is condemn. That's the first thing, right? I want us to be real and I want us to be honest. The first thing you want if homosexuality comes down in Alabama is you're, you're, more, you're more apt to break out the stones than you are to preach the gospel. Right? We want God to pour out His wrath because we're already safe from it. And that's evidence that God still has work to do in us. As those who have been shown mercy, we should desire mercy for everyone. And we show that we don't when we stay quiet, knowing the truth that we have. So they are without excuse. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to, to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And this is where we're going next week. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We have the truth. And we need to be proclaiming the truth. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for allowing us to come together in this place that we could open Your Word, that we could um, be refined more and more whether it be through the fellowship that we've had with one another and encouraging one another in our walks, whether it be in the classes where we were taught by studied teachers or whether, Lord, you used me in some way to prick the heart of some individual. I just pray that we are all useful, Lord, that we are real, uh, Lord, that we uh, do not take for granted the gospel truth that's been presented to us and that we would by it be emboldened to go out and share it with others. Um, Lord, they are blind because they have exchanged the truth for a lie. Let us be willing to lay our lives down to give them 
the truth that was presented at the life, death, and resurrection of Christ.